Um, what I want to do today is just partly recap um, some of the trauma material that, um, that you looked at last week and that, uh, to some extent, we're looking at again this week. Um, down somewhere. Um, okay. Have you had any problems about getting lectures, the two lectures, lectures 17 and 18? Yes? It is there. But its title isn't there. The annoying thing is that its title isn't there. It's just that whoever they pay to get, do the scanning doesn't always... <laughs> doesn't always write in the right information about each extract. So you really have to read it quite carefully. It does say Lecture 17, but it doesn't say the, se- the meaning of sim- or the sense of symptoms, which is the title of the lecture, irritatingly, but it's there. Okay. And people have been able to get hold of the Hoffman, Tales of Hoffman, uh, the novella Mademoiselle de Scudery, which is this great trauma narrative. Okay. Um. So... Uh, last week and, uh, and this week, again, we're thinking about trauma and Freud's theory of trauma and the ways in which psychoanalysis uh, comes into being out of Freud's confrontation with or struggle with the experience of trauma and his, his attempt to understand it. Um, the 1893 preliminary communications paper, which he generously attributes to Breuer and himself, but which, in effect he mostly wrote, um, is the moment of a kind of break from his, his mentor, Charcot, who introduced him to the whole um, drama of trauma when he studied with Charcot in Paris. Um, and where it's the moment where he has clearly broken from uh, the hereditarian assumptions behind Charcot's conception of trauma. And when Charcot died somewhat um, suddenly, um, Charcot's own model of trauma was, it, to some extent, in crisis um, anyway. Um, Freud then abandons the whole assumption of an inherited hysterical um, uh, constitution, which is simply activated by shock, uh, an experience of shock or trauma. Okay. Um, and he elevates that experience to uh, the position of, of a full causal power, Okay, uh, and in that 1893 paper, he offers the very simple didactic examples, uh, in which it is, you know, a pretty, as I was saying last week, a pretty direct one-to-one um, causal relationship. Okay. Um, okay. So this is the 1893 paper with Breuer, preliminary communications, where basically it's a traumatic event, say E, leads, leads to a symptom, okay, and there, and there may be a time gap, T, you know, between the two, there may be a, a delay, uh, a la- an incubation period, and that itself, um, uh, as it were, called into question uh, a purely uh, biological or physiological or physicalist um, explanatory model because if somebody walked away from an accident on two legs and then developed paralysis of the legs a month later you know, they would have, how could that have arisen from the accident because 
they walked away from it and they were fine. Uh, and Charcot himself moves to the position of, uh, well, there, there are um, unconscious ideas, split off I, uh, mental ideas uh, that are associated with the shock, the psychological f state of fright, of being taken by surprise in an unprepared state, um, which has split off a set of memory traces, uh, mental ideas, uh, which are um, then uh, worked through and finally, in a belated way, producing the symptom. So the symptom is idea-based. Okay. Uh, and that's a key element that Freud takes from Charcot. The other element I said that he takes from Charcot, um, having abandoned his hereditarian assumptions, is taken from Charcot's model of the hysterical attack and the four stages of the hysterical attack, and particularly stage three, uh, which Charcot calls attitude passionnelle and uh, scenes of passionate movement, is how Freud translates it. Um, but again, though, though Charcot noted these, and he even described the scenes of passionate uh, movement or, uh, um, that his patients went through in stage three of the, uh, of the grand attack. Um, he just saw it as being, uh, uh, you know, just simply uh, meaningless mental side effects of the state of shock. So while he often took down what he called their chatter, their bavardage, um, he didn't interpret it or think about it, as it were, at all. And the records from La Salpetriere, page after page after page of these people in, his, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the very grip of the, his, the, that moment of the hysterical attack, um, addressing their invisibles, as he rather contemptuously referred to it, as it were. But he just saw this as the, the, the after effects of a shock that provokes the inherited constitution to kick into into action. Uh, and Freud takes that moment terribly seriously and starts to listen. Or rather, um, he does that because his mentor, Breuer, who, who had been his mentor before he, got, before he went to Paris, and probably had, I think, was partly responsible for directing Freud to go to Charcot, um, uh, Breuer had had this strange experience of analyzing a patient um, or dealing with a patient who, who's called Anna O, um, who, uh, and Freud talks about it in that um, uh, first lecture um, uh, the, from the five lectures on psychoanalysis that I recommended you look at over the summer. Um, uh, the patient who, in states of absence, um, uh, goes into a kind of <coughs> delirium, uh, and Breuer is completely flummoxed by her extraordinary baroque range of symptoms. Um, uh, and he catches odd phrases and words from her delirium and he hypnotizes her and then puts the words back, offers her back her own speech. Um, and she then talks about uh, the situations that had been uh, behind the deliria, uh, as it were. So at that point, hypnosis is being used as a therapeutic technique um, to gain access to uh, whatever the disturbing material is that gives rise to um, uh, the deliria uh, and the extraordinary range of symptoms of, the, of this patient. And Breuer had uh, told Freud about, when Freud was still a student, uh, uh, about this strange case in which Breuer himself, as the authoritative doctor, had been in some sense dispossessed of his authority by the patient, that he was completely flummoxed by it. Uh, and uh, 
he tried, you know, the, the, the time-honoured way of the doctor interrogating the patient about their symptoms. And at a certain point, she just said, shut up and listen. Just be quiet and listen. Um, uh, and so he's reduced to, to, to listening to his patient's speech under hypnosis. So again, the patient's speech becomes um, a, a central focus, and Anna O calls it the talking cure, okay? uh, chimney sweeping through, through putting things into words. And over a period of 12 months, he uh, uh, sees her two or three times a week uh, uh, in which this happens. And in a kind of extraordinary one-to-one -one correlation, um, what she rehearses in each of the encounters is what happened on that day the year before when she was um, uh, looking after her dying father. She was nursing her father in his last, in his last days and weeks. Um, and he finds, he, he gets out to find, that he, he gets to find that that is the case um, because he, he, her mother had kept a diary of these events. So he has this sort of outside uh, uh, material um, of the, that enables him to correlate um, the sessions he has with her with the events that she's, that, that, that she's referencing and which she's in a sense reliving under hypnosis um, almost to the day afterwards. So Freud's carrying this strange case around in his mind um, and Breuer himself doesn't write it up. Um, he broods over it because this took place in 82, 1882. Um, and I think it's 85, 86, Freud goes to Paris. He tries to tell Charcot about the case and Charcot doesn't really listen, isn't really interested in this young German guy who turns up with this tall story. Um, Though he and uh, Freud and Charcot form a, a, a very strong relationship and Freud becomes Charcot's German translator um, and goes back to Vienna, absolutely committed Charcotian. And then in the course of the late 80s and early 90s, gradually uh, realizes that the Charcotian model isn't working and also that um, hypnosis as a therapy is, is very hit and miss. So he abandons both uh, the hereditarian model and, and the technique of using hypnosis um, to, uh, for the technique of, of, of trying to get people to um, free associate. Uh, um, so the 1893 paper is the paper where he pays a huge compliment, and he does in the, the other, there's two 1893 uh, papers. In both of them, he pays a big compliment to Charcot at the same time he, as he, as it were, breaks from Charcot and foregrounds the question of a, of a repeated scene, of a certain kind of repetition that is being acted out by a patient who doesn't know that that's what they're doing. Okay. Um, so that when Freud tries to describe that you seem to be saying this, or you seem to be living out this kind of, this kind of an event or repeating this kind of scene, and the patient will invariably respond, I have no memory of that whatsoever. So he's faced with this anomaly of, a, of something being acted out in the present between him and the patient. Um, which they do not consciously remember, but which they keep, as it were, in some senses, reliving uh, uh, and, and repeating. Um, so it's not memory in, 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 in the traditional or common sense sense of that, of that term. I now, in the present, remember that event back there in the past. It is my memory because I took part in that event. Uh, but rather, it's as if the memory remembers itself in me or the, the memory 
or the scene, remembered scene remembers me, conscripts me into it. Um, but it's not my memory. I don't remember it. It's that strange doubleness um, of something that's in the present, um, but which is being disavowed by the person who's, who's living it out again. And he sees this very much as uh, a, diff- a, a, a kind of a new kind of causality, a sort of psychical causality that works in different ways from, uh, uh, say, the, the model of causality that, that Charcot had been talking about. Charcot uses, as I said, this metaphor of the argent provocateur who, like, plants a bomb and then vanishes away and uh, six months later the, pom- the bomb blows up, uh, where you've got an absent cause for a present effect. Um, whereas Freud's saying it's really like a kind of foreign body that's been planted and which continues in, in the patient. Uh, uh, it is present. There is an event. So it's not a past event, but an event that is present again, represented, relived in the present. Uh, and that's where its effectiveness is. Um, but also in the fact that the patient is unaware of it. It's a precondition for its power. Um, Okay, but Freud is increasingly pushed as we work through the case studies that we looked at last week um, uh, as, as the, the whole notion of a kind of uh, causality and of uh, a particular kind of temporality that's peculiar to trauma develops. And the whole idea of, of um, incubation um, and of a gap or time lag becomes more and more important. Um, so uh, if you think of the simplest early case, which is about 1894 that we looked at, it's about to give out on me. Uh, stupidly, I didn't bring one with me. Um, uh, can I get it? Sorry. No, 94, anyway. <laughs> the case of Katerina that we looked at in the seminar... Um, there it's a kind of, again, it's a version of this. Um, uh, he begins by thinking uh, there's, a, there's a traumatic moment that produces the symptom. And when he interrogates her about what is that, that moment where you look through the window into the bedroom and your uncle stroke father was there with your cousin on the bed, uh, and you had this hysterical attack of breathlessness and anxiety and suffocation and a hammering in your head. Um, uh, what, what did you see? And, and she says, I don't know what I saw. Right. So something to, there's something that's both there and not there. Which, uh, and as he talks to her, it becomes clear that earlier things had previously happened. Um, so he's... he's He's what he was originally calling the traumatic moment, the moment where the symptom arises or where the hysterical attack first happens. Um, it seemed to be the repetition of something earlier and something else. So, we ha- so uh, if you like, the traumatic moment becomes, you know, uh, event two, E2, if you like. Behind that is event one, an earlier moment, which is then being recapitulated in some way um, by the secondary moment. Now, in the case of Katerina, she can remember that first moment. She thinks, oh, yes, that. Oh, yes, that's an odd thing that happened. That's right. He tried to get into my bed when I was 12, and I felt him. Um, uh, so it's not something she, at that point that she's repressed. It's a memory that was disconnected. He says it was like in storage. She didn't think about it. It was split off. But she hadn't forgotten it. And then you know, she calls it to mind. Um, and 
he then, she's then able to associate a connection between this earlier event and this strange moment of seeing and not seeing, which, which crystallizes out in historical attack. So you've already there got uh, the notion of, of an incubation period um, and an interplay with t between two events. Okay, and it takes that interplay to, to generate uh, the, the explosion of the historical symptom, in this case, full-blown hysterical attack. And then this symptom of, a, of an angry face that dogs her, she says. She, she can't identify who his face is, but she keeps seeing his angry male face, which he is later, at a certain point, being able to identify as, in fact, her father. Um, <coughs> we then looked at um, a, 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 a richer and more, and more developed case, the case of Miss Lucy R., uh, which is extremely interesting. I'm really annoyed that this thing doesn't work, so I really wanted to do a neat little diagram on the board for you. Um, no, it's not going to work. Okay, um, so if you, if you map it out yourselves, okay, we've got um, a really quite complex um, series, okay, and Freud works backwards, okay, so let me recap, okay. There is the symptom she brings into the analysis for the first time, which is the smell of burnt pudding, and she remembers perfectly well the event you know, in, which, in which it happened. Okay? Uh, she, uh, her mother writes her a letter, um, and the letter's going to say, uh, fine, you're unhappy with your job, leave your job and come back home, uh, and you can live with me. Um, and it's her birthday. And the children take the letter and hide it, and then they give it to her as a present. So it becomes the children's present to her. Okay? Um, and uh, she's upset, um, uh, and so, but she's able to remember this, and she tells it to Freud, and Freud's question is, well, why, why should you, why didn't you just work it through in the way we normally do with emotionally distressing material? Um, why, why have you produced a symptom? Um, the, the production of the symptom is a sign that there's something unconscious that is at work here. Um, and so he interrogates her further, and she says, well, he said, you know, I, I'm very fond of the children, Fine, um, but you know, again, that doesn't explain why you're producing this symptom. Um, uh, this fixation on a smell that has been dogging you uh, whenever you are distressed or upset, she starts smelling it really badly um, because it's you know, the pudding that was on the stove at the time when the children gave it the letter, uh, they forgot about and it burnt. And, and so the moment has been seared into her olfactory memory, as it were. Um, and she gradually remembers a scene where... Um, uh, the children's mother was dying and on her deathbed she, uh, the children's mother says to the governess I want you to promise to take my place with the children I want you to promise to take my place with the children uh, and, the t and the phrasing is really important as, as so often in this case the verbalisation of, of, of the connection is crucial and uh, Freud makes this extraordinary leap um, uh, and, and, and he's right um, he says, I think you're in love with your employer. That you want to take uh, the mother's place with the father and not just with the children. And it takes her by surprise. Uh, and then she says, yes, yes, actually that's true. You know, I was in love with him and I pushed it out of my mind because I didn't want to think about it. And actually I succeeded in doing it. So Freud says, ah, so we've got it. And that's what this is about. Your emotional conflict is something you don't want to think about. It's your emotional attachment to the father figure, the employer, um, uh, and uh, that's what's um, in conflict with um, your mother's letter to you. 
saying, um, uh, leave, your, leave your job, you're unhappy there, you're not getting on with the employer, the other servants don't like you, come home to me. And so there's this conflict between two mother figures, right? Her mother saying, uh, you can come home now, uh, and the dead mother, the mother on the deathbed, whom she promised to look after the children, but who also sanctioned her at, at some level of unconscious wish or fantasy on her part, said, take my place, take my place. And she's taking it as being not only with the children, but uh, with, the, with the father figure. And that seems to clear up um, uh, uh, the, the smell of burnt pudding. It starts to fade and go away, and it seems fine. Problem solved. Um, except that she then comes back after Christmas with Freud with another symptom. And this, in a sense, is telling us what Freud says at the end of his 1893 paper. You know, Breuer and I can decode symptoms and make them vanish by bringing them to consciousness, but we can't understand the underlying condition. And so new symptoms will continue to be formed, and we don't know what, why or how or what to do about it. Okay, so it's a very partial clinical success. And we see that exemplified here because she turns up with another symptom, also an olfactory symptom, the smell of cigar smoke. And Freud works, does the same thing. He gets her to try and associate and, uh, around this smell. Um, and uh, she produces a scene. Uh, and again, the scene doesn't really... Uh, the scene where the symptom first occurred, okay, like the burnt pudding uh, and the letter. Um, and though she can say, ah, that's when it happened... Um, when an old family friend, the accountant of the father's firm, had had lunch with them and was and saying goodbye and kissed the children on the mouth. And the father went ballistic uh, and attacked the old, the, the old family friend for, for kissing his children on the mouth. Um, and she said, I felt a stab at my heart. And this is, why? He's not attacking you. He's not criticizing you. He's attacking this other person who kissed the children. Why are you feeling stabbed in your heart? So, in other words, the scene in which the symptom appears begs the question, why, you know, you might have been a bit upset, you might have felt he was being a bit rude or a bit brutal, but why have you suppressed it and fixated it in a smell that has been dogging you for the last month or six weeks or whatever it is? Um, and again, she has to work back to the scene behind that scene. Um, and that's the scene which Freud then comes to call the, trauma the traumatic scene for the sequence, the whole sequence, okay? Uh, and that's the scene where uh, a lady had visited the house um, uh, uh, and she had lunch with the, with the father or whatever, and she's saying goodbye and she kisses the children on the mouth. And when she leaves, the father turns on her and goes ballistic uh, and says... It's a complete failure of duty. How could you let this happen? If it happens again, I will fire you. And that's just the moment where she thinks, um, he doesn't like me. There's nothing between us. I was fantasizing it. Uh, and she then tells Freud about a scene in which uh, she'd been alone with the father and he'd looked at her in a meaningful way and said, well, you know how dependent I am on you uh, uh, to look after the children. And she took that as a kind of acknowledgement that there was something between them, that there was some basis to her wish to take the mother's place with the father figure. And now she feels, he's turned on me, he's been violent and brutal and, and completely unfair, uh, I must have been wrong, or, you know, so I, I suppress all my feelings for him. These are intolerable. Um, and she pushes them out of her mind. 
So Freud then says that we have an etiological or causal series, traumas, the original trauma scene, which is the father's violence against the governess, and two later auxiliary scenes, and it's in the two later scenes that symptoms are produced. The symptoms are not produced in that first traumatic scene. Okay? They're only produced in a belated or deferred way in auxiliary scene one and auxiliary scene two. Um, so he's got a three-scene structure. Okay, so the temporal sequence of what he's going to call Nachtreklichkeit or um, deferred action in the Strachey's translation or afterwardsness um, uh, is beginning to take shape. Okay, um, and I was pointing out in the seminars that actually it's more even more complicated than that because the, there are two other scenes she mentions that are the preconditions for that three-scene structure to work in the first place. That is to say, there's the deathbed scene with the mother, what, what I would call the maternal scene, and then there's the, the scene with, of intimacy with the father figure where he, he appears to be indirectly confessing his feeling for her. Okay. Um, and in effect, what we've got here, Freud doesn't have the concept at this point, um, is, is a, f a female Oedipal configuration in which some sort of infantile fantasy uh, of, of, um, of, of gaining the father's love from the mother. And lo and behold, the mother's actually giving her permission. I'm dying, please take my place. So it's as if a kind of infantile Oedipal fantasy is suddenly being licensed uh, and she's given the chance to act that out. Um, and then it's been cancelled or, or, or violently cancelled and, and she repudiates it. So there's, a, there's a yet a further dimension that's latent in the text, which Freud doesn't have the concept um, to understand at this point. So he's thinking this is this three-term structure, all, of, all t taking place relatively recently in the woman's adult life. But I think looking back and reading it in the light of, of later psychoanalytic developments, you can see that there is also um, a v a actively at work uh, a kind of infantile fantasy structure. Uh, uh, which is why it's got the power that it's got, as it were. So, this, so it's even more complicated, as it were, um, and more uh, rich structure, if you like, than, than Freud was at that point able to recognise. Um, now, we then moved on to the Emma case. Um, and the Emma case is a transitional case between a model of a generalised trauma, that is to say that Freud, when, when asked to define trauma, defines always in economic terms. It's an excess, a surplus of, 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 of um, stimulation, of excitation, that has suddenly uh, uh, come upon the subject without preparation. It produces a state of fright. Okay? Uh, and it's that state of unpreparedness um, and the inability to absorb, to integrate, to process uh, this, this surplus, of, uh, this, this excess. Um, so it remains, as it were, unintegrated, split off, undealt with, unprocessed, arrested in some sense. Um, uh, and it's, it then it provides the precondition for a, a later, at a later date, a belated or deferred um, eruption of a, of, a, of a symptom of some kind. And Freud, in thinking about the case of Emma, um, formulates, um, well, two things. The, the, uh, the event behind the event, so to speak, the E1 that's hidden behind E2, which is what she comes into analysis with, um, is a sexual event. Uh, and in this case, a, 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 an experience or an event of sexual molestation. 
um, by, by an adult. Um, but also Freud is driven to think again and to, and to formulate the paradox of this um, uh, interplay between scenes that, that seems to be necessary for the production of symptoms. Um, so, uh, and it's why uh, the, the standard, the tr translation in the standard edition by Strachey of deferred action, uh, which is a purely one-way linear conception of deferral, of postponement, um, is, is an, a misleading translation because um, you need the sense of, yes, deferral or postponement of something which then acts back on and reactivates and releases something uh, on material that was always already there, as it were. So it's a kind of forward-backwards movement, as it were. Um, and indeed, as I, su I suggested, nach, traeg, traeglich, kite, uh, a kind of really literal translation of the German would be sort of carrying afterness, um, après coup in the French, um, or afterwardsness is a more, might be a more a adequate translation of that, of that forward and backwards uh, interplay. And that's what he starts to formulate for the first time as an explicit concept in uh, the Emma case when he's thinking about the interplay between uh, the apparently innocent scene in the department store where Emma sees these two young men who are, who are assistants in the store, one of whom pleases her, and then she, she is overcome by fright uh, and bolts out of the department store uh, and is unable to go into, sh into stores or shops alone by herself for the next however many, ten years or so. Um, so the symptom only arises at that later apparently innocent non-traumatic moment um, and behind it is... Uh, uh, are these two scenes where she goes into a shop, is molested by a shopkeeper, then goes back a second time and feels guilty about the whole thing. Again, she... Freud doesn't quite address the question of what is the exact status in her mind of that first event. But he does make it very clear it's only repressed in the second moment. That's the moment where the ego is taken by, by surprise, the moment of fright, the moment where... Um, as Freud explains it rather nicely, that the ego's defences are turned towards the outside world to manage and control and to avoid distressing perceptions. But what happens is not a distressing perception but a memory that catches the ego from behind. Um, and its only reaction in a panic-stricken mode is to strike it out. It doesn't exist, it didn't happen. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, the moment of repression, as it were. Um, but that's also the moment of the formation of the symptom, okay, as the, as the, as the return of the repressed, the other side of the act of repression. Now, what Freud, in effect, has discovered at, the, at these moments is the operation of the unconscious as a product of uh, specific defensive strategies on the part of the ego, But it's still, at this point, um, and in all these midnight papers, including the, the further remarks paper with the case of the paranoid woman from 1896, um, it's still very much for Freud a matter of, um, of a temporary splitting off of something that you have to sort of recover, reintegrate, and then the unconscious dissolves. Okay? So repression is a pathological defense mechanism. Um, it results in a splitting of consciousness to the creation of a temporary other mental state and the aim of analysis is to dissolve or liquidate the unconscious. And it's that model that comes into crisis 
um, uh, with the abandonment of the seduction theory. Now, I, I need to say a little bit about that. Freud has moved increasingly to specify in more and more um, uh, particular and restricted terms the nature of the trauma. So it's not just any old thing that might be traumatic. Um, it's specifically something sexual. And then increasingly, um, given the, not, not all his patients, but a high proportion of his patients were women, um, uh, the, the, the figure, the seducer, uh, it's a question of a sexual, sexual experience in childhood when the child is still asexual, where its sexual um, uh, capacities and um, uh, physiological uh, processes have not been developed. It's a pre-puberty um, uh, traumatic sexualization of the, of the child. Um, and increasingly, though he never says this in his published work, uh, and it's only clear from his letters to Fleece that he begins to think it's the father. It's the father. That's what's at stake. Um, uh, and indeed, he thinks it's the case in his own case as well. Not that he felt he was abused by his father, but he thought that his sisters had been. Because um, he felt they were hysterics and, um, and that the father was responsible for it. And so he's in a, he's, when you read the letters through to Fleece, through the, that period, he's in a kind of crisis. It's a personal crisis, and it's also a theoretical crisis. Uh, and it's a professional 